0: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Corey Wharton. I'm the administrator for the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialty, and you're listening to another episode of the ASSP Health Beat podcast. So with us today is Dr. Amber Mitchell. Dr. Amber Mitchell has a uh, just an enormous career and a lot of accomplishments, <clears throat> Excuse me, including work with uh, OSHA and CDC NIOSH, and she currently runs the Expo Stop Survey through her EpiNet system with the International Safety Center. So um, Aside from, you know, letting me speak for her, we're happy to have her on here. And um, Amber, if you would, if you want to go ahead and give our listeners a introduction about yourself and, uh, you know, where you come from, where you're going and about your career and everything in between.
1: <laughs> yes, I would. Thank you so much for the invitation, Corey. Um, you've been a, an absolutely wonderful collaborator over the years, and I admire your work so much, and I'm honored to be here with you today. Um so I wear a few hats these days. Uh, first and foremost, I really enjoy life on the water. I live just southeast of Houston in a town called League City, right on Clear Lake with my husband, two dogs, and a cat. We absolutely love water living, especially watching the seabirds and hearing the cling of the sails on the sailboat mast. I love to cook and eat and eating comes with exercise. I'm a bit of a Pilates and podcast fanatic, which is wonderful. This is my first podcast interview. I love learning new things on long walks. And honestly, if I had to do it all over again, I'd be a Pilates instructor and a nutritionist, without a doubt, Um, although I reckon I could still make both happen. Um, You always seem to be expanding your career with every step, and I'm just, so you you inspire so many, um, so thanks, Corey. But career-wise, I consider myself to be an occupational infectious disease specialist with a strong emphasis on infection prevention and industrial hygiene. Um, currently, I run a nonprofit called the International Safety Center. And, as mentioned, we disseminate an occupational incident surveillance system for reporting and recording needle sticks, sharps injuries, and mucocutaneous exposures to blood and body fluids as well um starting last year, Epinet was the background for expo stop, and we had a short hiatus because of the pandemic, but we're excited to get started again. um I also serve as a contractor to the NIEHS, which is the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, which is an agency under NIH, where I serve as a senior science advisor, specifically to the worker training program for COVID-19. It's been an absolute privilege to work with that group of such dedicated professionals. Um, I also work as a contractor for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration for their work on COVID. I'm adjunct faculty at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in the Occupational Environmental Medicine Program. And I consult for medical device and pharmaceutical companies on all sorts of occupational safety and infection prevention initiatives. I also just had my first book published. You always inspired me to do that, Corey. So I thank you so much um, for that. It's out and widely available. But ultimately, I've worked in every sector imaginable, from restaurants and bars to the federal government. I was the very first OSHA bloodworm pathogens coordinator, so I'd be happy to answer any questions on OSHA compliance. Um, I've worked in the private sector with medical device companies, startups, um, to state government with the University of Texas School of Public Health. And now I finally feel like I'm a gig economist or a solo practitioner um, while also running a nonprofit, I feel so lucky to have done it all, and I can't wait to explore life's possibilities as
2: they unfold. Yeah, that's excellent, excellent. I know you have a just an enormous amount of
0: experience, and one of the things that's you know so good about that, uh, of course, among all the other good things, is that you know you you have such an intense focus. On the area of bloodborne pathogens, needle sticks, sharps injuries—you know—all of those things that are just unfortunately so prevalent in the healthcare and the in the public health world. So that's really beneficial for everybody. You know, the, the the tighter a group we can get on those hazards to prevent those types of exposures, you know, is just such a huge risk. With each one of them being a coin toss as for communicable disease exposures and things of that nature. So. Um, we definitely applaud all the work that you do. And um, so with that, you know, I know you mentioned that you had done a lot of work with, with OSHA and, and regulatory compliance on there. So when you're looking at those things, how are some of the ways that you've seen throughout your career that needle sticks, sharps injuries, bloodborne pathogen, body fluid exposures, you know, what's, what's the the big smoking gun or the big culprit of how these things tend to tend to manifest in the in the workplace. What, what have you seen about that?
1: It's a really important question, and you're right. Um, I did grow up in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, my mom was actually an AIDS nurse in New York City, so this has been something that's been a big part of my life since I was a little girl, and. I think coming up, I thought I was gonna to go to nursing school or medical school. And uh, when I was at George Washington University, finishing up, um, I the School of Public Health actually opened right across the street from where I was working, and I this was a perfect fit, I thought, for me to go into a field where I could help protect people that care for others. And the, the smoking gun, I think, are many, um, and I'd like to go through first how we set up our EpiNet data and look at surveillance over time, including much of the ExpoSTOP data, to really identify the importance of surveillance and measurement. So you you can't fix what you can't measure, um, you can't prevent what you can't see, and part of that really is a really robust surveillance system and it does not have to be complicated. The EpiNet, which stands for Exposure Prevention Information Network, started in the early 1990s out of the University of Virginia by my longtime mentor, Janine Jager, and it's now been disseminated to almost 100 countries, translated into 30 languages. We just um, came on as the National System for Cambodia, so it's now in Kymer. Um, And it's been disseminated to thousands of hospitals um, in the U.S. But the data that we collect and report annually is a smallish set of about 40 health systems or so. And when we compare our data to a state like Massachusetts, so for those that don't know, Massachusetts is the only state that requires all licensed hospitals to report their data to the state. So it is the largest um, data set for sharps injuries and needle sticks. And I work with their longtime expert, Angela Laramie, on many, many different projects, including our most recent 2020 consensus statement for sharp safety, of which we had a huge collaboration with many people uh, who are experts on this topic area. So the way our surveillance system works is that when Someone is injured in a healthcare setting. Let's say they get a needle stick while performing a skin injection, which is the most common injury. And during mass vaccination programs for COVID, this is something to really keep focused on. They would, let's say in a traditional healthcare setting, they would show up at employee health or occupational health or infection prevention or EHS or whatever entity it is that does employee health and they'll either fill out a form, a paper form, about their exposure incident or they'll sit down with their occupational health practitioner and type in the data as they go. Um, EpiNet will ask information about what their profession is, what department they work in, what device or procedure caused the injury, and if they were using a device with a sharps injury prevention feature or a safety device if it was a mucocutaneous exposure, so exposures to eyes, nose, and mouth, whether they were wearing personal protective equipment or not, and the data is very robust by design because it's intended to capture information about the incident, Um, more so, let's say, than traditional OSHA record keeping, um, so that these incidents and exposures can be prevented in the future. Um, so, you asked about the largest um, injury types, and I'd love to dive into that a little bit more if I could. Um, so, year after year after year, the largest categories of employees or worker categories getting injured are physicians and nurses. and um, nurse injuries traditionally happen at the bedside because it 's frequently where they are the most, and typically with <clears throat> excuse me with hypodermic needles used for skin injection, um, the more and more we see uh, people needing insulin injections, so injections from insulin syringes because of the extreme rise in obesity in the United States and people with type two diabetes. Unfortunately, we're seeing that manifest itself in more and more injuries from syringes used for insulin injection. For physicians, it's quite different, however. Physicians are most commonly being injured by suture needles that are used in the operating room. So these are two very different scenario types for injuries. And as well, you know, which is why it's really important to collect robust data so that you can identify who is being injured by what device in what department. Um, I would like to spend a couple minutes, too, a little bit later talking about mucocutaneous exposures, so exposures to the eyes, nose, or mouth, and the importance and the role of what we have already known about surveillance data. And how I think we could have been better prepared for COVID-19,
2: especially with accessibility to PPE and healthcare. So I'll leave it at that for now. That that's just great information. and the 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 amount and the
0: the specific, specificity, I think that's the word specificity. Specificity <laughs> of your information and data is just great. And um, very helpful. So with that, um, it's interesting how you how you tied that together with the reporting requirements that are needed to get a good picture as far as how the hazards are manifesting and how the injuries are happening, how the exposures are happening, versus what's required. So when you are working over there with OSHA and you are putting together that information, um, what are your thoughts on the the OSHA you know the SHARP's log? and the OSHA 300 requirements in terms of, um, do you think that's providing what's necessary for people to, to be able to capture what's happening and prevent future exposures?
1: It, it's a really important question um, because you're right, I did mention the importance of surveillance, but I don't know that just internal surveillance or internal recording or internal record keeping is, as impactful as it could be if there were more of a collective of where to send that reporting information to. So I'm not advocating for sending any type of confidential information about employees themselves anywhere outside of an institution. Um, but it it would it will be curious, I think, especially in this new presidential administration, if they will re explore the electronic record keeping and reporting back to OSHA as a collaborative of information to really establish a clear picture of what's going on relative to occupational exposures to bloodborne and infectious disease. So, you know, most, uh, an institution is required to keep records on contaminated injuries from needles and syringes and suture needles and medical devices and also for mucocutaneous exposures. But that information then doesn't go anywhere. Um, There's no requirement to then report it outside of the institution. And whether or not that institution uses that data to be productive as a way to build preventive strategies. So let's say that we know, and and we do know from our EpiNet data, that the largest numbers of mucocutaneous exposures are to the eyes, which are extremely high-risk exposures, and that when asked if people were wearing personal protective equipment, specifically eye protection during that exposure, that a very small percentage, less than 10% of people are actually wearing eye protection. So we, and it has been this way year after year after year after year. And I think that if we had used data more actively on the national stage to set up a better sense of preparedness for whatever was to come, meaning an emerging infectious disease, we had always had our eye on Ebola over the years 2012, 2013, 2014 not expecting that COVID would come into play. And I'm not saying that COVID is transmitted via blood, but it is transmitted via mucous membranes. And so if we had used data more actively, whether that was more robust national surveillance system, CDC has not been capturing occupational exposures for years and years and years and years. So I think all this to say it's important to capture surveillance data at the facility and to really use it proactively in the facility to build better campaigns. But we might be better suited if there was more of a requirement for the collection of data outside of those facilities so that we could see um, a better picture of the true risk that healthcare workers are facing for
2: bloodborne and infectious disease. That's great, great, great perspective. And
0: you know, it's interesting how you bring that up in terms of causal factors, because I know that's something that almost everybody I've ever talked to in healthcare safety has has worked with is, you know, the the duality of, you know, you have the equipment that we use, making sure the equipment itself is safe. Then having the processes and the training and the SOPs to properly perform the task, you know whether it's drawing blood or giving an injection or or running an IV or or whatnot. And then you've got the third hazard area, you know, the fact that you have the patient may move or the patient may get agitated or combative mm-hmm. or whatnot, or you may have visitors in the room. Or, and then you've got the fourth factor, which is the you know the factors of, of the employee as far as you know their their experience level and their knowledge of the task and um whether they're fatigued which is a whole whole different conversation as far as you know long working hours and things of that nature so when people go to put all this together you know it it's certainly certainly a lot to look at for each of these exposures and and i do agree with what you're saying as far as the COVID-19 pandemic has definitely added a whole new a whole new um realm you know, because not only are we dealing with things that happen every day, you know, like you said, like drawing blood or giving injections or running IVs or whatnot, but then you've also got, you know, this pandemic, which not necessarily bloodborne exposure, but like you said, mucous membranes and droplets. And then there was the big, you know, the big discussion that started about a year ago, as far as whether it was considered airborne or droplet precautions. Mm-hmm. You know, then we've gone into the N95s and then came the issues with with counterfeiting and price gouging and everything else that worked on that realm. So, so it's a lot to look at. Um, so that's great that you're able to analyze all that and, and keep, keep such a good sight picture of it. So when you're looking at all this, you know, of course, it's a very general question, but so now you've talked about the record keeping, you talked about the best practices, the regulations, the causal factors. So what are some of the things that that you put out there for your clients or the people that you work with? What are what are some of the you know the top three best practices in terms of exposure prevention that you've seen in your career?
1: Oh boy, uh, nothing nothing like springing a top three on somebody. Um, I think um, I, I've learned so much, um, especially from m- much of my work with um, aerosol scientists like Lisa Brousseau about about the importance of thinking more in control bands. Let's say we focus a lot on on the hierarchy of controls and industrial hygiene, but it may be the best benefit to incorporate the hierarchy of controls with more of a source pathway receiver model where you're thinking about how do we eliminate an exposure at the source So that could be the patient, that could be the procedure, that could be the device. What is the pathway with which that, we're talking here about pathogens, so with which that pathogen is getting from the source to the receiver? So is it a needle? Is it a syringe? Is it a sneeze or a cough? Or is it from splashing when you're pouring urine into a hopper or toilet? So what does that pathway look like? And then how well prepared or controlled for eliminating that exposure is the receiver? And in this case, it could be um, a surface, if we're thinking about surface contamination and or very likely it is the worker. So, so I I think top three, like I think that. What's the top way to eliminate the source exposure, the top way to eliminate that pathway from happening and the top way to eliminate all of those other things from happening to the worker. And if we look at the largest exposures of bloodborne exposures or infectious disease exposures even, let's make it more broad, is from the patient to the worker's eyes. So we know that the largest number of splash and splatter exposures are to the eyes. and this has been this way for a very long time. So is doing that procedure necessary? Could it have been eliminated? Um, if there was any way, let's say now we know that face masking for the source is an effective way of decreasing that pathway. I'm not absolute for sure. I am not a proponent of face masking instead of respirators. but just for eliminating that pathway um, and potentially eliminating that exposure from the patient to the worker's eyes or again in pouring urine or body fluids into a toilet or a hopper and having that splash back is there a way to cover that to eliminate the splash back Um, and then of course the worker wearing appropriate personal protective equipment including uh, face shield eye protection respirator if it's necessary, or a surgical mask if if a respirator isn't necessary. It's hard now in healthcare to say respirators aren't necessary, but given supply issues, I completely understand if they aren't. Um, And then the second highest numbers of exposures, as mentioned, are suture injuries to physicians in the operating room. So, Let's just say for skin closure, and I am not a surgeon, um, but I do know from years and years of analyzing our EpiNet data that the largest majority of suture needle injuries happen during skin closure. So, are there other ways to eliminate that with the use of, let's say, zipper closures or adhesives or staples or some other method? Um, By the way, Corey, one thing in the operating room that's happening is that a quarter of all exposures, these are sharps injuries, are happening to the non-user. So that means somebody on the surgical team, because they were doing hand-to-hand passing of an instrument and then injured the person who was receiving that instrument, which could result in double exposure, meaning If it happens inside the operative site, it could be extremely high-risk exposure of the blood from that person into the patient, and then the patient, of course, back to the worker. So these can be really devastating injuries, or in prepping surgical devices as they go down to sterile processing or central sterile supply. And in these cases, it may be impossible to, to identify the source patient because the instruments are being processed so far down the line that they may not know um, who they were used on. So again, these are really devastating to employees that could have to endure post-exposure prophylaxis um, for HIV, for hepatitis C, because the source is unknown. So um, so first eye exposures, um, second suture injuries in the OR, and third are skin injections to nurses. And I have huge concern about these because of our mass vaccination programs for COVID, and not so much in the healthcare setting. I think in a healthcare setting, we're pretty well prepared to do post-exposure prophylaxis where if there is an injury, they go to occupational employee health, or they report to the emergency department right away to do post-exposure prophylaxis or source testing. My biggest concern is for vaccination sites like at convention centers or community settings or pharmacies where there are huge lines of cars. Um, my niece just had hers done a, at um, a sporting stadium. Huge lines of cars where there may be an injury um, to somebody who is vaccinating or there may be an exposure, or splash or splatter, without any true protocol for how to do, what to do next. So if I had an exposure, then do I time out and then go to the local emergency department? Do I go to a first aid tent? How do I do source testing? What protocol is in place for that person that's in their car getting vaccinated? So I think we need to take many, many, many of these healthcare models and institute them for healthcare that's being provided outside of an acute care setting um, so that we're not compromising occupational health for public health at this critical time during a pandemic. So those aren't the top three per se, but those are the top three highest risk injuries and exposures that I think we need to
2: remain focused on, especially now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with that.
0: Um, and you're definitely correct is that, you know, there's an absolute need for those processes. Especially, you know, not 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 only the preventative measures in terms of the hierarchy of controls and preventing exposures and injuries, but the response processes in terms of, like you said, um, source patient collection and um, incident reporting, and in, and um, the um, post exposure testing and prophylaxis if needed. You know, all those things are definitely necessary, and and they're they're a lot different when you're in the field versus in a hospital. Um, it's kind of like the conversations we used to have in the military where, you know, every process has to be equally effective, whether you're, you know, on a fully equipped base with a fully equipped hospital or whether you're in the, you know, the back of a Humvee in the desert, you know? So it's, it's kind of yeah. interesting how this has worked out um, with the pandemic is that not only have we had these mass vaccination sites and we've had, Mass testing sites as well, you know, with a lot of regulated medical waste and body fluids and things going around, but also um, the fact that all these things have been happening, whether in you know huge parking lots or in uh, community centers or different places that aren't normally not normally attuned for for healthcare. But um, that, that's uh, very good insight that, that you have there. And in terms of the hospitals themselves. Definitely the the surgical areas, you know those. I remember running some data myself um, about five six years ago, and it was very much aligned with with what you were speaking about in terms of the the operations that were having the exposures and the causal factors and whatnot. We found that surgery, um, the surgical areas, they were they were very much in the lead there. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, one thing I'd like to say, too, about surgery, I've never really understood an institution is more likely to select a really high dollar thing to improve surgeries, you know, robots, imaging, all kinds of things. But when you're thinking about substituting out something as low cost as a sharp tip suture potentially for a blunt tip suture or for um, an adhesive or zipper closure or and i'm not endorsing any of these products at all it's just that doesn't follow suit so the osha blober pathogen standard does require that frontline employees evaluate select and implement devices on an annual basis and in surgery for making procedures safer for the workers, it's not as likely as evaluating a high-dollar surgical fancy thing to improve, um, you know, the, the shininess of what that department is doing to compete with other departments that are local. And I'm wondering if we shouldn't think about a shift and how facilities are competing for really high quality workers um in balance with you know the the patient mix, we tend to focus more on especially here in Houston, on what facility is better, has a better outcome or um, better marketing for how we draw in more patients and more payments, and we tend to lose focus on how to really. Keep our working population
2: safe and well, and what that means for recruiting and retention of really high-quality workers. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's very interesting
0: that you say that. You know, that's definitely something we talk about as well with, you know, with executive teams and whatnot. Is that, particularly with HR, you know, is if you're aiming to be, you know, employer of preference. Especially in an area where you have a lot of competition, you know, like for example, the Texas Medical Center just comes to mind, then um, you know that that's definitely something that is a huge selling point, you know, is if you have a a reputation and a history of being able to protect your employees, then it would be it would be um, easy to believe that that would be something that people would want to go towards if you're you know, especially if you're a highly sought after, you know, experienced RN or a, or a doctor, physician, surgeon,
2: you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's, that's great, great input. So with that, so let's say that, so now we talked about, um, kind of about reporting, we talked about record keeping, we talked about causal factors, best practices. So if you had to take these things and kind of translate that. So if somebody were to ask you to give a briefing to a, to a leadership team, what is what are some of the takeaways that that you would like people to see in terms of being able to prevent exposures and being able to respond to exposures what are some of the things that that you'd like to see if you went around and did a you know a tour of some of these facilities
1: i i've i've done it for years and i i don't know that anything works other than what i think my new approach is going to be which is a plea um a plea to leadership, especially now as we're, we've, you know, unfortunately, the pandemic has brought to light so many different elements, including what we already knew, which was how important healthcare um, workers are, especially those who are working in occupational health and safety in healthcare. And my, I think it would be a a desperate plea, which is. Um, we cannot function as a country even as a society without quality healthcare um i i mentioned earlier i come from a long line of healthcare heroes um mostly nurses and i can tell you from experience that they are typically wired to think last about themselves so this is something that non clinical leadership needs to understand kind of about the psychology and the psyche of healthcare workers, um, that they are wired to think about their patients first and about themselves last, if at all. Um, I remember um, as a kid that my mom was always gone. I grew up as an only child with a single mom who was a nurse, and this is more and more. uh, Back then, I was the only kid that lived like that, but now it's more and more common that um, kids are growing up with single parents who are in the healthcare field, since the healthcare is one of the, maybe even the largest field now. Um, I think last year or two years ago, it it, um, surpassed manufacturing for the largest sector. Um, So more relevant than ever, um, she was dedicated to her job and ultimately internalized her stress so much that it resulted in her death at the age of 46. And so this is a story that we hear more and more now, um, especially with thinking about resilience and mental health and COVID fatigue and all sorts of elements that are happening during the pandemic right now, um, opioid overuse. So I'm telling everyone this because it's it's been my life's work to remind caregivers that they must first care for themselves. Um, And I would say the same thing to healthcare administrators. They're responsible for the health and wellness of every single person that comes into their facility, whether it's their staff, whether it's their patients, whether it's their visitors or their vendors. Um, They owe it to the patients that they care for, um, their kids, their families, their friends, the community in which they function. Honestly, without healthcare workers, there is no healthcare. Um, that means not only taking time, and I'm talking to administrators, too, not only taking time to protect themselves against injuries, but also taking time to care for their bodies, their minds, getting regular exercise. This is going to sound silly when we're talking about occupational health and safety, but you cannot be an effective human without an effective working body. Um getting regular exercise, sunshine, vitamin D for boosting immune health, eating whole foods, drinking lots and lots of water, and mixed in with relaxing hobbies, surrounding themselves with love and positive people. It's never been more important than now. Incorporating these elements into life can be the difference between surviving or not surviving this pandemic. So, I, I don't know that that's a traditional approach to healthcare leadership, but it is an
2: absolutely honest and critical one. I I, I totally agree. Um, you know, you're you're definitely on
0: the on the same line of thinking that I am in terms of um, you know holistically looking at wellness and you know, making sure we're prepared to work safely and then have the right equipment to work safely and the right processes. And then we're able, all these things add up to where we're able to do these things safely in real time, you know, while taking care of people, some of whom are in a very bad state. Um, It's interesting how it works out, you know, um, like you said, especially within this pandemic, you know, people's stress is, you know, at at a heightened point and people are expected to work in areas where Things that may not have been considered, you know, high risk a couple of years ago, now they're in areas where they have to watch out for things like like social distancing and having proper air circulation in buildings, and, you know, some facilities have temperature screenings on the way in, so all, all these things are adding a lot, of, a lot of variables that weren't there before, and so if people are already burnt out and they're already working 70 hours a week, six days a week, or seven days a week, then... Um, is that much more difficult to prevent these exposures um, w- would you agree with that yeah. i I would totally
1: agree with that not to mention that you know the body is is pretty smart the stressors physical stressors mental stressors manifest themselves into what you internalize and what your body can handle um, whether or not there are arguments out there about about droplets or aerosols or airborne doesn't matter that the virus itself is inhaled right which how whichever way it gets into your body it's getting into your body if we don't have effective controls in place meaning as you mentioned effective ventilation airflow personal protective equipment physical distancing Once the virus gets into your body, you need your own defenses to help fight that off. And with somebody who is under constant stress, it may be nearly impossible to do that. So it's so critical right now for people to take care of their own health in addition to how their employers
2: are taking care of their physical environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that that's all very very real to me. I've had a lot of
0: issues in the past where, you know, I've I've had plenty of doctors that would tell me that, uh, you know, uh, I've had uh, you know autoimmune conditions and whatnot, and they've been they've been very clear to me that, you know, working ninety hours a week and um, all of those things are definitely not not helping my case. But uh, what what you're saying is definitely very real. <clears throat> with all that and and it doesn't one
1: one additional additional thing thing. it doesn't seem natural it seems unnatural i think in today's society especially for americans to do nothing um you know it seems like it's prized to be answering emails at 2 a.m sunday morning it seems prized to be constantly at your computer, on email, running around, doing double shifts yeah. overtime. Yeah. But this is not what your body is built for. And it is really important to get rest, to do nothing, to get good sleep, to get sunshine. And I'd hate to be remiss. You know, I I believe this is a total worker health Uh, way of thinking about things, but honestly, this is a, your body was designed to get these things to keep you well and alive kind of thing, which is a human health issue, and I think we've gotten away from how how to keep people healthy so that they can then be a healthy worker because we focus so much on how to keep them well at work, which is also important, but we need to take personal accountability of how we manage our time. Uh, Which is the very last thing that I'd like to add, um, which is for anyone listening um, that's interested in this unique field of occupational health or public health, I encourage you to reach out. Um, We need more of you and I think given so much interest in this field since the pandemic it's obvious um, that we need more of us and i you know i think corey i join you um, in making ourselves accessible to provide advice mentorship someone to bounce ideas off of um, someone to um to walk beside them as they're exploring the journey into this field and really thinking innovatively, creatively about how we improve the health and wellness of those working in healthcare, providing, not even in healthcare, for those providing care to
2: others, no matter where they're working. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, that that's
0: always, you know, always fantastic of you to, to offer your, you know, your leadership and your expertise. Um, you know, we're always glad to have you on board, and, um, you know, you're always welcome to, always welcome to work with us
2: anytime. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, definitely a lot to talk about there. You know, I would say um, there's probably a
0: probably another hour's worth of conversations just about. <laughs> easily. I'm, I'm sorry, say it again, please. I said easily, easily an hour's worth, a week's uh, worth, a month's worth. Absolutely, yeah, I was gonna say uh, if, if you're up for it, we we can do a do a part two later and and get into more of those issues
2: <clears throat>
0: but uh but for now that that was just fantastic. Um, and I totally agree with you, you know in terms of setting ourselves up for success, you know, making sure we have optimal health and optimal wellness and optimal optimal equipment, optimal processes, and then we're able to work within the constraints and the stressors. And the different, you know, real-time variables that come along with especially with healthcare work. So I think yeah. if we look at all those things, you know, methodically, then everybody has a much better chance of taking care of themselves and others. <clears throat>
1: as a model, that's right. As a as a model to our kids, our communities, our friends and colleagues. Um, we always look to healthcare workers really as model citizens and I think that there's an opportunity for those of us who are in healthcare to to model
2: not just safe practices but well practices for others too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Leadership, by example, for sure. That's right. That was one of
0: the, you know, it's it's funny you say that. I remember years ago um one of my friends at the same time that I was in the Air Force. One of my friends joined the fire department in a in a different city. And I remember he used to laugh because the fire department stance, of course, was, you know, we don't we we, we expect everybody to practice good personal wellness. And that includes, you know, not smoking cigarettes and not drinking too much. And, and then he would laugh because they'd come out of a out of a structure fire or a chemical fire and they would go outside of the hot zone. And immediately you know his his captain or his chief would you know chain smoke cigarettes, you know <laughs> so yeah, and you literally just took off an s c b a and you' you're smoking cigarettes, you know
1: yeah well my uh, my mom was a chain smoker too, and i I mean you need a relief
2: yeah,
1: you need something to reduce the stress of a really emergent situation and you know, unfortunately, I think we're learning more and more now, too, with um with opioid use disorders that people are relying more on things that Im- impact them more quickly. And we need to find ways to figure out how to have that release without without hurting ourselves more and and regular exercise is really important but if you live in the middle of a busy city under a freeway or have no access to sidewalks or safe green spaces too there's a lot of injustices relative to how we think about our health just based on income and race and where we live and we could talk about environmental injustices all day long too but these are critical elements that um, play into the health and wellness of of a worker anywhere in the
2: world. Oh, definitely, definitely, and um, you know, I, I agree with that. And I know that the the
0: discussion around fatigue in that same realm, you know, that's something that's been talked about forever. And it's one of those things that, of course, the ideal is that you know people work, you know, X amount of hours per shift, X amount of days per week. And then, of course, you know, the organizations have have personnel needs. And so then, like you said, people are very, very quick to, well, I can handle that. You know, I'll step up for that. And then before you know it, people are working, you know, 80-hour weeks, double shifts, you know, all kinds of different variables that that detract from the overall wellness. Um, So finding that balance is, is critical.
1: It, it is also with very unstable um, policies on time away from work. So especially with COVID, there's been so many discussions about work relatedness and family medical leave and paid time off. And for so many hourly workers, that's not an option of which there's a huge number in health care practices so addressing how to be away and how to get yourself well while quarantine and not getting others sick but also the ability to make wages to keep you know a roof over their heads and food on the table is is a
2: real struggle these days for so many working in in healthcare yeah yeah absolutely mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of variables there. And I think that
0: there's a lot of things that we could we could talk about for sure because, you know, like you said, all of those things have either direct or indirect impacts on the ability to work safely. And yeah. it's kind of a butterfly effect. You know, it's all these things happen, whether it's um, hours work or whether it's home situation or whether it's, you know, vices and um, healthy eating and hydration, exercise, you know, all these things come into place. And then, you know, they come up, they come to work with us. And then you've got the variables at work that either can or can't be directly controlled. And that all kind of manifests into that moment where, you know, whether it's the safe equipment, the safe practices, the wellness, all those things come together as to whether or not there'll be a an exposure to well borne pathogen or body fluid. So the, the more we can prevent all that, the better. And
2: absolutely.
0: I think there's, there's a lot to talk about there. So definitely, if if you're up for it, we can uh, we can plan to do a part two later.
1: Sounds terrific. I'm up for it for sure. I just thank you so much for the invitation to participate today. Um, it was a terrific opportunity.
0: Oh, you're you're absolutely welcome, and we're always happy to talk to you. And uh, we'll definitely um, hopefully you know as things as things evolve, you know, in a, in a positive way. Hopefully we'll be able to, um, you know, to do the national conferences and the the different functions where we where we typically, you know, all get together. So we'll see how things how things transition as we go into the spring and summer. But um, but for now, um, i sure appreciate you being here today, and uh, we'll definitely be in touch. But uh, is there anything else you'd like to like to add to the conversation before we sign off today?
1: No, no, there isn't. I look forward to the day where tons of butterflies emerge from all that we have learned. So I think just pulling back your butterfly analogy, I just, I look I look forward to to new beginnings and fresh starts with being smarter and safer than ever.
0: Okay, I, I totally agree. It's, I like how you say that smarter and safer than ever is, that's always been my, you know, my, my wish for all of this is that if we're able to come out of this pandemic with lessons learned that prevent, you know, future exposures, not only to, you know, SARS and respiratory viruses, but also to well, more pathogens and body fluids and, and tuberculosis and meningitis and everything else, hepatitis, you know, then
2: that's a win for everybody. You know, it's, it's a hard-earned win, but hopefully we can, we can get it. I agree. All right, well, cool. Well, again, uh, Dr. Mitchell, we sure appreciate being here today, and um, we'll, we'll talk
0: to you real soon. We'll see if we can plan a part two. But uh, with all that being said, appreciate everybody listening to the Health Beat podcast today. And as always, please check us out. We're on Anchor, we're on um, Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, and several other platforms. And we also have the Health Beat publication, which is available on the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialty Discussion Board, and then also on our LinkedIn and Twitter pages. So please check us out there. And if anybody's interested in joining the Healthcare Practice Specialty or getting involved with our advisory Board, always feel free to let us know. Our contact information is on the website, and it's also on the ASSP Communities Discussion Boards. And we're always happy to hear from anybody, and we'd love to hear your perspective and feedback. So with that being said, we'll go ahead and sign up today, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you all.